This next session is, is uh, probably con as contentious and controversial at the same time of interest and value as, as any in the entire two-day conference. We're focusing on Iraq, which after Afghanistan has become the longest war in American history. Um, America has m multiple interests in the country and these interests have implications for American policies. And American policies have implications for America's relations with their friends, partners, and allies in the Arab world. To chair this session, we have Dr. Kenneth Katzman, who's no stranger to many of you. He's had a, a background in the intelligence community. He is a leading Middle East specialist at the Congressional Research Service which is the think tank for members of Congress. And those who work beside him are among the unsung heroes and heroines of writing um, analyses, nonpartisan, uh, for the advice of members of both houses of, of Congress. He's written and published widely in this area, especially on Iran, but also on Iraq. And um, the kind of job that he holds is one of atrocious deadlines. But no matter how articulate or even eloquent or inventive in English speakers in this city can be, their influence is next to zero after about 72 hours when people's memories begin to fade until or unless their thoughts are reduced to paper. This is his specialty. He's one of the few who are great at it. Ken Katzman. Thank you very much, and uh, uh, let's roll. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm Kenneth Katz, but I work at the CRS. Uh, just, we have an absolutely august panel. Uh, everybody's bio is in the brochure. We have Dr. Juan, we're going in the order, basically alphabetical order, uh, Dr. Juan Cole, Richard Mitchell, Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan. Dr. Eric Davis, Professor of Political Science at Rutgers, past director of the University Center for Middle East Studies. Dr. Uh, <clears throat> then we have uh, Shamim Rassam. She's an expert on the Iraqi media with Al Hurra, which is the U.S. funded uh, sort of, some say it's trying to be a competitor to uh, Al Jazeera, but uh, it's the U.S. funded broadcasting to the Middle East. Uh, served with the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq. Uh, Dr. Paul Sullivan, Professor of Economics at uh, the National Defense University, the uh, defense think tank here in Washington. Um, just to throw out, uh, it's uh, very timely that we're holding this panel. Just last week, President Obama announced that, uh, indeed, in line with the strict interpretation of the uh, security agreement with Iraq, we are indeed leaving. U.S. troops are going to zero troops uh, about eight weeks from now, by, by Christmas, I believe he said, in accordance with the uh, 2011 deadline. So we're going to have an Iraq on its own. So just to get us started, I'm going to throw out a few questions that the panel may address, may not but just some questions that I think are 
on the policymakers' mind, what will Iraq look like after the U.S. withdrawal? What are the range of possibilities from a, a best-case scenario to a worst-case? If we get the worst-case outcome, how damaged are, is our U.S. interests? What policies should the United States pursue to bring about the best case, or at least avoid the worst case scenario? What resources are required? What are some of the indicators? How, would, how are we going to know whether we're getting a best case or headed toward a worst case outcome? Who are the main personalities and factions that are crucial to the outcome? What, how does the U.S. relate to these persons and factions? What does the U.S. need to do to steer these factions in a way that we think brings about a positive outcome? How much influence do Iraq's neighbors have over the outcomes in Iraq? What should, what can the United States do to get the regional actors pro to promote the outcomes in, in Iraq that the United States wants? <clears throat> How is Iraqi foreign policy likely to evolve? It was certainly hoped going in in 2003 that Iraq would come out an ally of the United States. Is, is that going to happen? What, is, what are Iraq's foreign policies going to be when it's no longer under the U.S. Uh, tutelage or umbrella? So these are some questions, and uh, they may or may not get answered, and I think maybe most of them will. And we're going to start off then with Dr. Uh, Cole. Thank you very much, uh, Ken. Um, I thought since the, t the panel is entitled Geopolitical Dynamics and then colon Iraq, uh, that I would address geopolitical dynamics uh, with regard to Iraq. And uh, here I want to underline uh, the events of the Arab Spring, uh, including uh, part of the Arab Spring that hasn't gotten as much attention in the American press uh, that in, in Bahrain, and uh, its impact on Iraq and on the region. And I can telegraph that I, I think that what happened in Bahrain ultimately benefited Iran, and especially with regard to Iraq. So, uh, as you all know, uh, there were a number of countries in the Arab world where there were popular demonstrations uh, in uh, last spring. Uh, Bahrain was a little different from some of the others uh, because, for the most part, uh, the demonstrations did not demand that the ruler depart. You know, in, in Tunisia, Egypt, uh, the, the slogan was Irhal, get out, uh, and directed at Zainuddin Ben Ali in Tunisia and Hosni Mubarak in Egypt. Well, on the whole and by and large, uh, that, that wasn't the demand in Bahrain. The demand in Bahrain was uh, a constitutional monarchy. Uh, the uh, current ruler of uh, Bahrain instituted a um, a constitution at the beginning of this decade, which uh, specifies that the lower house of parliament is elected, the upper house is appointed, the appointed it's appointed by the king. Uh, the appointed upper house can overrule anything passed by the elected lower house, and then the king can overrule both of them. So um, you couldn't call it a democratic system. And uh, the 
demographic problem in Bahrain is that roughly 58% of the population is Shiite. Uh, the districts in Bahrain were gerrymandered so as to ensure that the Shiites got 18 out of the 40 seats in the lower house. So they couldn't get a majority in the lower house, even if they had one, everything they, they passed could be overruled by the Senate, and if it chose not to overrule it, the king could just overrule it. So they, that was their big demand, was that they wanted uh, uh, a more a democratic legislature, they wanted constitutional reforms. They also, the Shiites of Bahrain felt discriminated against in various ways, and they wanted uh, a better position in Bahrain society. Um, I think there was uh, uh, some thinking uh, among the circles of the crown prince in Bahrain that they might try to negotiate with these demonstrators, uh, but in the end, the hardliners, uh, uh, including the prime minister, who is the uncle of the king, and has been prime minister since the country became independent in 1971, prevailed and they crushed the movement. Not only did they crush the movement, but the Gulf Cooperation Council, uh, to which Bahrain belongs, uh, sent in troops. The Saudis sent in about 1,000 troops. Uh, the UAE is said to have sent in troops, although I've never seen any visual evidence of them. Uh, and um, in any case, uh, this is, I think, a pretty big thing, because Saudi Arabia, in this instance, acted like a regional hegemon. And it's the first time that I can think that it did so, Yes, it, it did bomb the Houthis in, in, in Yemen when there were incursions across the Saudi border, uh, but that's from the air. But actually to put in troops to a neighbor, that's a different order of things. And the, the action of the Saudis uh, in supporting the Sunni monarchy in Bahrain against the, the, the protesters were not entirely Shiite. The, the, the Wad party, which is Sunni, joined in, and in Bahrain, the people demanding that this movement be crushed were also mixed because they were the big merchants of Manama, which include both Sunnis and Shiites. From the outside, it looks like a Sunni monarchy crushing a Shiite popular movement. It was more complex than that inside Bahrain. From the outside, that's what it looked like, and that's how it was interpreted in Iran, where Speaker of the House Ali Larajani threatened the Saudis. He said there will be there will be a price to be paid for what was done in Bahrain. Uh, the, the Iranian parliament passed resolutions, uh, the, uh, Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader, denounced the Saudis, and so forth. In Iraq, uh, the Sadr movement in particular sponsored uh, a, a number of big demonstrations against what was done in Bahrain, uh, and they interpreted, again, as a Sunni monarchy crushing a Shiite popular movement, uh, and so for them, it, it looked like 1991 all over again when, when the largely or the predominantly Sunni uh, government of Iraq crushed uh, the Shiite uprising in the south. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and in Iraq, this event in Bahrain has been seen as, as, a, as a sectarian issue. Uh, the, the Iraqis, the Iraqi Shiites uh, in their press had long accused the Saudis uh, of, of supporting the insurgency in Iraq, the Sunni insurgency in Iraq. Uh, I think unjustly, I'm quite sure that, that the, the Saudi royal family was as afraid of those insurgents as anybody else, but, but that's what was said in, in Iraq, and therefore the idea of Saudi troops in a Shia majority country helping to maintain Sunni 
predominance uh, really jangled the nerves of the Iraqi Shiites. And uh, on the contrary, the, uh, the Sunnis uh, in large Sunni cities in the north, like Mosul, were pretty happy about it. Uh, and, and so uh, the Bahrain issue played as a sectarian issue. Uh, and I think that it pushed Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki, who is the head of the Dawa or the Islamic Call Party, closer to Iran. Inside Iraq, you know, the Shiites are a majority and the Shiite parties dominate uh, the politics uh, for the most part, uh, but they have varying relationships to Iran. Um, the, the Sutter movement is Iraqi nativists who don't like Iran very much, but their leader, Muqtada Sadr, has kind of become captive to Iran because he was forced into exile there. Uh, the, um, the Supreme Council for Is uh, uh, Islamic Revolution in Iraq uh, um, was hosted by Iran and really was founded at the instance of Ayatollah Khomeini. So they're very close to, to Tehran. Uh, the Dawah party is lay. Uh, it is, you know, physicians and attorneys and, and, and professionals uh, are the leaders of it. And it hadn't been traditionally that close to Iran, and it hadn't been very happy about Iran's doctrine that the clergy should rule. And so uh, uh, President uh, uh, Imam Jalal, Imam Jalal Talabani has joked that as a Kurd, he was closer to Tehran than Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki was, even though Maliki is a Shiite. But I'm arguing that as of this year, that started to change, and that the Bahrain issue began pushing al-Maliki closer to Iran. Uh, another factor in this cozying up of al-Maliki to Iran, in my view, was the way that his current government was formed. Uh, Iraq has a naturally hung parliament. Uh, that is to say, it, nowadays, because the Shiites split in two, there are four factions that would come to power typically in any Iraqi election. Uh, it would be a faction supported by the Sunnis, uh, the Kurds, uh, and then two, two Shiite factions. And they all dislike each other. So it's impossible to form a government under ordinary circumstances. It's kind of like Belgium. Uh, and um, uh, what happened in this term was that after the March 2010 elections, there was six months of negotiating and back and forth in Belgium-like situations uh, and then um, uh, the Iranians appear to have twisted the arm of Muqtada Sadr, the fiery younger Shiite Ayatollah who leads the Sadr movement, who hates al-Maliki, but made him join al-Maliki's coalition, and as a result you get a reformation of the Shiite coalition that has ruled Iraq since 2005. This is a direct Iranian intervention in Iraqi politics. Uh, so al-Maliki started to owe his position to the Iranians in a way that he hadn't ever before. Then the Saudis went into Bahrain. And then the final piece of the puzzle geopolitically is that uh, uh, Syria also is undergoing this continued uprising. And again, it's, it's not, if you're down on the ground in Syria, it doesn't look so sectarian. Uh, the, the regime, the Ba'athist regime in Syria, is a secular regime. Uh, and it's afraid of, of Muslim fundamentalism of any sort. And um, nevertheless, ethnically, the, the upper echelons of the Ba'ath party in Syria are dominated by the Alawi uh, sect, which is, is nominally a Shiite sect. They're heterodox Shiites. They're not like the ones in Iraq and Iran for the most part. Um, 
they have a lot of mythology. I, I sort of think of them as the Santa Monica Shiites. And um, <laughs> so it, it's not a natural alliance of the Orthodox Shiites of Iraq with the Alawites of Syria, who have this kind of folk Shiite mythological approach to religion. Um, but and then the people who are rising up against the regime are all kinds of people. There have been uh, some, some Alawite demonstrations. And in Dera, in the south, near, near Jordan, where there's been a lot of demonstrations, at one point the regime said that the Salafis were causing all this problem, the hardline Sunni fundamentalists. So the next day there was a big demonstration in which the, the, the people shouted. They were all like 20-year-olds, right? These are the people making these uprisings. And they, uh, they chanted that Nahnu Shabab, Mish Salafiyim. We're not Salafis, we're just youth. Uh, so, but, as I said, if you get away from the, the grassroots in Syria, you look, look uh, at it from, uh, uh, from 30,000 feet, it looks like Sunni fundamentalist Muslim Brotherhood and its potential constituencies in these small Sunni dominated towns of Hama and Homs and so forth rising up against Shiite-dominated Ba'ath government. Now, al-Maliki had always hated the Ba'ath of, of Syria. He actually had lived in Damascus for about 20 years. He was the Dawah bureau chief uh, in Damascus when they were trying to overthrow Saddam from the outside. And I don't know exactly what the Ba'athis did to him in that period, but apparently he came away from it with very raw feelings. And so you go back two, three, four years, all the bombs going off in Baghdad, al-Maliki would blame those on Bashar al-Assad personally. He thought the Syrians are blowing up Iraq. So all of a sudden, in late August, al-Maliki comes out and he warns against the turmoil in Syria, supporting the uh, al-Assad government. And he says that Israel might take advantage of it. Wasn't that where we came in? I mean, wasn't the neocon argument for getting rid of Saddam was that he said things like that? So we're, we're and this is not typical of mainstream Iraqi political discourse in the past few years. Yes, Muqtada Sadr might have said something like that. But for Nouri al-Maliki, the pr prime minister of Iraq, to come out and say, we should support the Bashar al-Assad government and avoid turmoil in Syria because the Israelis might take advantage of it, that's a different discourse. I mean, this speech, it seems to me, must have been written for him in Tehran. So I see Syria and Bahrain and the way they have developed and the way that they're interpreted in the region as sectarian issues as having pushed al-Maliki into a warm embrace of Tehran. And this has happened at a time when the U.S. Uh, is, is essentially being forced out militarily from Iraq. Those people who worry that Iranian influence might grow in Iraq if the U.S. leaves, it seems to me, are way out of date. I mean, that cow is out of the barn. Thank you. Okay, well, good afternoon, everyone. First of all, I want to thank uh, John and the council for inviting me to uh, present here today. And uh, despite the uh, topic or the title of my presentation today, what is the future of democracy in Iraq, I want to emphasize that I'm not a futurologist. I first went to Iraq over 30 years ago to conduct two months of 
research in May and June of 1980, and Iraq is far too complex a society to reduce to uh, simplistic uh, predictions. But basically, the takeaway from my talk today is kind of three points. First of all, there is strong support for democracy, which I want to try to explicate. Secondly, there is a dysfunctional and increasingly neo-authoritarian government. And third, very bad neighborhood effects, particularly as Juan has just pointed out, and I would uh, underscore that on the part of Iran. Um, I want to first uh, present a kind of historical memory because I think had the United States adopted a very different policy after the invasion of Iraq, uh, I think this panel would have a very different uh, tone and structure to it today. Uh, dissolving the uh, conscript army, getting rid of the national police and the process of debathification, allowing the looting that took place, which really undermined uh, any confidence that Iraqis had in what the Americans said they were there to do, namely bring democracy. And also the uh, CPA's elimination of uh, agricultural subsidies in August 2003, which made Iraqi uh, farmers much less competitive with uh, Iranian and Syrian imports and led many young farmers to go to uh, urban areas where they joined insurgent movements was definitely a very bad policy. So I'm going to look, move rather quickly through the first uh, group of slides since time is uh, short, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, the statistics that I'm going to present at the end of the presentation. But I just want to quickly kind of dispel with the kind of argument that's often made that Islam is somehow incompatible with democracy. And I choose uh, Ayatollah Ali Sistani. I don't agree with all of his positions, but I think as you can see from these bullet points here that he plays a very important role in promoting democracy, and I'll bring some other uh, factors into the mix uh, later on. Uh, the elections of 2005 were flawed in the sense that uh, Rockies largely voted along sectarian lines. Still, there was almost a 60% turnout. And uh, how many American presidential elections have 60% uh, turnouts? I think one of the last I can remember was Humphrey Nixon in 68. That was a 60.3% turnout. But, they, but a constitution was written despite the fact that it was done in haste under American pressure. Uh, and one of the good things about that, I think, was that it required the parliament to have 25% of seats given to women, certainly a higher percentage than in many uh, Western democracies. Uh, these images here are shown not for propaganda purposes, but really to point to the fact that Iraqis were quite thrilled, as Tunisians were recently, to have the opportunity to vote. In 2009, we had uh, Arab provincial legislati legislative elections, kind of the equivalent of our state legislative elections. Uh, sectarian parties lost votes. Uh, people demonstrated now that some security had been brought to the country in 2008, that they wanted services, not sectarianism. Uh, there were many parties, not all of them, of course, uh, really viable, uh, civic in orientation, but many new candidates and many new parties that were. And I think what was very, very interesting in the Kurdish region, which we often lose sight of, was the rise of the Garan Party, which despite intimidations and threats and firings from government jobs, was able to win 25 percent of the vote. And what's interesting here, if you look at the Goran uh, emblem, you'll see that not only does it have Goran in Kurdish, but it has Taghir, or change in Arabic, which is sending a message to the Arab population that the Goran is not uh, inherently antagonistic to potential uh, alliances with, um, with Arab uh, in the South. And I think what's very interesting is to look increasingly, and I'll try to 
talk about this in terms of the research that I've conducted with Iraqi youth, that we're an alliance of young people, and given the fact that 25% of the Iraqi population is under the age of 25, that brought Kurds and Arabs together that could have a very significant impact on Iraqi politics. The March 2010 elections were, I think, uh, contra what many people argued, largely uh, won over by secular forces, despite the fact that Maliki, uh, Maliki's State of Law Coalition and the National Iraqi Alliance won a lot of seats, but still the Al-Iraqiyalists did bring together a lot of Kurds to vote for that and Shia. And what was very interesting, again, was that two clerics here, uh, Ahmed Abdel Ghafoura Samarai, the Grand Mufti, uh, the Sunni Grand Mufti, and Al-Sistani prevented Maliki from postponing the elections, which he wanted to do because he saw that his uh, support was declining and forced him to use an openless system so that you could see who you were voting for. And that was very important in terms of women voters because in the closed list, many of the women voters were chosen by the various parties and they really were not in any sense independent. Uh, the, party, the elections were interesting because many sectarian politicians were forced to form cross-ethnic coalitions. And again, very high turnout. And both the elect, Iraqi elect, High Election Commission and foreign observers indicated that the uh, election was fair. And here are some images from the electioneering of that, of that uh, parliamentary vote. And here what's very interesting, if you look at the posters for Fidu's Hatim, of the most sectarian alliance, I would argue, the uh, one that's uh, really under the control of the Sudras and the uh, Majlis al-Ala, of the higher, higher Islamic Council. Um, what was interesting that in certain areas where they knew people had a kind of secular bent, their candidates were not wearing the hijab and were wearing uh, makeup. Whereas if you look in the lower right hand, or the lower center uh, photo in poor areas, there the same candidate appears in a very different garb. So let's talk about politics since 2010. We have an, an intense internal uh, conflict. The United States tried to help overcome that by uh, offering to broker the development of a National Council for Strategic Affairs. That would be a kind of uh, booby prize for uh, Ayad Alawi because uh, he was basically prevented from uh, forming the government and having really any say in the new, in the new government that was put together. And as a result of the kind of stalemate that's existed, there have been no real uh, policies that have dealt with important problems like creating jobs and improving government services. The Kurds at first were kind of happy with this because they saw themselves as power brokers, but now they've changed their views. And if you looked at the, at the Hayat newspaper a few days ago, Talibani party met and have said that the biggest problem facing the country from their point of view now is this uh, inability of Malikin Alawi to really reconcile. In this whole process, as nothing has really been done about jobs, about uh, the economic factor, and with all our emphasis in Iraq and looking at it through the prism of Shiites, Kurds, and Sunnis, oftentimes the political economy is totally neglected, and we continue to see that there's an absent state in the south, and with the withdrawal of British and U.S. forces, and Iran getting involved in the mix, we continue to see the growth of militias in the south, uh, and with the severe water shortage that's affecting Iraq, the continued migration from rural to urban areas, uh, this continues to present a major problem. In terms of the Arab Spring, it's kind of a misnomer to apply that because Iraq purportedly has a democratic system, so it's not that demonstrators are asking for democracy, but rather that democracy actually have some meaning. And young Arabs and Kurds have been killed in some of these demonstrations, including uh, journalists who have written critical articles. 
And what this shows that the uh, Arab youth in particular, but Iraqis generally, I would argue, want more personal freedoms and a more responsive government. This most serious problem in Iraq, I would argue, is lack of jobs, substandard government services, and massive corruption, not sectarianism. Iraq's political parties divide up the spoils. All ministries are basically patronage networks. And Iraqis, the public at large, resents the lack of jobs and services, despite the country's extensive oil and natural gas wealth. And of course, we know that Iraq is 175 and 180 on the NGO Transparency International's list of most corrupt countries. Here we see the point that I was making at the beginning, that there is strong support for democracy. And we also see that democracy is very different than the democracy envisioned by the Bush administration, which is going to be a kind of a night watchman state in which there was no involvement in the economy on the part of the government. Because you can see here that jobs and unemployment, and this is, these statistics come from a National Democratic Institute poll from last November. Here I want to talk and end up uh, with some research I did last year with 600 Iraqi youth focus groups uh, throughout the country in the Kurdish and Arab regions. This is uh, preparatory to a much larger national family survey and a much deeper study that I'm going to be engaged in over the next three years. And if you look at uh, the first uh, question that I'm putting up here, and I'm just giving you a kind of uh, taste of what we have found in our results, how many times per week do, do you attend the Friday khutbah in the last month? You see that 72% uh, of the respondents, and these are youth from the ages of 12 to 30, say they never go. And many of the youth, when they were asked an open-ended question, said if they do go, they often go because they're forced to by their parents. The kind of sad thing here is that increasingly for many young people, Islam is becoming associated with sectarianism and political opportunism. How would you identify yourself religiously? Certainly we don't see among this large demographic, 65% of the population, actually 70% if we talk about the demographic under 30, that 73% either characterize themselves as moderates or liberals. So the idea of Iraq moving towards kind of radical Islam is certainly not uh, borne out by generational data. 89% here say they would not join a political party. And when we asked all 600 uh, respondents, what were their role models? Not a single one mentioned a political figure. But then when I actually thought about that in terms of the United States, we asked American students, would any of them really say the same thing about any American politician? Um, if you look at how young li people's lives have improved, what's interesting is to look at the group that was not affected by the sanctions of the 1990s, the 12th or 18 group. They see their life as improving very much, which goes down dramatically if you look at the 25 to 30-year-olds. And there, 65% of them feel that their lives uh, uh, have not improved. What sources do Iraqi youth trust for news? Again, they certainly don't trust Iran. Uh, they trust the most uh, Arab, non-Iraqi media and Western-based media. And the thing that's very disturbing uh, when we think about the dysfunctional government and the continued sectarianism, and I just came back from a conference on, with, and had the opportunity to talk to a lot of Iraqi intellectuals, uh, professors at Iraqi universities, and sectarianism is increasingly becoming a problem on campus if you're not associated with a particular political party. You have a very hard time kind of maintaining your research status and your position in the university. Uh, that, uh, 68% of the 12 through 18-year-olds would not leave, but again, 36% uh, of those from 25 to 30 would leave. So even though 57% overall say they don't want to leave, the very fact that you have 
saying that they would in 12% maybe, uh, this could point again to another problem in the future, the brain drain. And we know one of the problems with the Iraqi bureaucracy today with the defathification is that many people in, in bureaucratic positions have used doctored uh, degrees to get those positions and actually are not providing good services. Now, to think of kind of Iraqi youth as pro-Western, I think is very simplistic, because if you look carefully at this particular graph, you'll see that 43% feel uh, that we can find a balance, or think that perhaps we can find a balance between Western and Middle Eastern cultural views. So this shows, I think, a lot of ambiguity in terms of identity, uh, where young people think they are going, and I think it points uh, very strongly for the need of active involvement, and I don't mean active involvement in a kind of a top-down, patronizing, we know better than you approach, quite the opposite, much more from a bottom-up approach, that the international community is very much needed, uh, and I'm not just talking about states, but also NGOs, to become involved in Iraq at all sorts of different levels. So from a citizen's perspective, and I'm going to wrap up now, I have only a couple more slides, I think Iraq is well-placed, uh, to make a transition to democracy if we use by as indicators voter turnout, political participation, and public opinion polls. And voting patterns suggest support for sectarianism is on the decline. However, if we look at it from the elite perspective, and this is another problem in terms of analysis, we don't make a distinction between elites and mass publics, between the citizenry and the people who are running the country that the government remains dysfunctional and corrupt. And if corruption continues and key services are not forthcoming, support for democracy could be undermined. And I draw our attention to those of us who know our Iraqi history. Uh, the period between 1958 and 1968 was one of great instability. So the worst case scenario, to try to address one of the questions that uh, Ken raised before, uh, is that Iraq is paralyzed by ethnic conflict as the corruption and lack of services continue. Iran and radical Sunni elements in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the Arab Gulf, uh, who were very actively involved in trying to stir up sectarian tensions in the 90s, paying uh, Sunnis to pray five times a day and women to wear the hijab, that again, this could uh, undermine and stall the transition of democracy. Our militias challenged the Iraqi government's authority in rural areas and poor urban quarters. This instability in turn undermines foreign investment and progress fails to be made in the oil and gas sectors, both in terms of exploration and their modernization. So are we moving towards a new authoritarianism? I would argue that since 2010, in particular, Nuri al-Maliki has undermined the process of democratization. He sought to control the independent higher electoral commission, the central bank, and influence the ways in which the judiciary adjudicates cases. He's created special military units that only report to him. He recently threatened a parliamentarian, Sabah Hassadi, with seven years imprisonment for criticizing him and has arrested journalists who criticize the Iraqi government. Will U.S. influence decline? Yes and no. Certainly our troops are going to be out, but I think Iraq is going to still need the United States to help it build its air force and train its army and, and something we often don't talk about, its navy as well, and its security services. We're going to continue to play an important role in promoting Iraqi interests in international financial institutions and conferences and uh, playing, paying down its debt uh, to Kuwait. The U.S., of course, will also play a key role in facilitating relations with Saudi Arabia and the Arab Gulf states and provide an important counterweight to Iran. So the United States needs to use its influence not to get sucked back into what we did in the past, get in bed with dictators in the region because we're seeing that whole policy exploding around the world, 
but it needs to really uh, take democracy seriously in Iraq. And if we look at these uh, final slide, this final slide here, we see these protests, the three, the two on the left, the one in the upper right-hand quadrant, Arab demonstrations, the one in the lower right uh, in the Kurdish region, which actually has suffered in many ways more brutal treatment by the Asayish and the local uh, intelligence agencies. The international community needs to support the democratic aspirations of the Iraqi people, which means that just sitting on our hands and asking academics like myself to make prognostications about the future is not enough. So I would just end by saying Iraqi democracy is not a spectator sport. Thank you very much. also. Now, and then you have the NGOs, you have the middle class, and you have the, uh, like, all the Arab satellites also beaming to the Arab world. You have the international media outlets that have opened also venues. And you have the Turks, you have the Chinese, you have so many messages. Everything now the consumer is receiving Satellites. I remember 2003, the first satellites were made in China. They were sold for $150. Everybody had a satellite. Yes, it's great. Dish. Okay. But really, what do the Iraqis say after all of these years? All right. I've gone back to Dr. Katzman, and those questions were beautiful. 
been following this. I'm sure everybody has been following this. What is happening? How is the, that message that President Obama stood and delivered? I was fascinated how this message travels overseas, across the ocean, in different media. I look, first of all, at the American media, of course. Press media here, then I look at the European and look at that. How did that message disseminate? What was the reaction of the Iraqi government, starting from the president, prime minister, deputies, and all the way down to the religious leaders and the community leaders? It was fascinating. And then, as uh, Dr. Eric pointed out, I have my own focus group. I don't know them. There are about 800 people all over Iraq and abroad. We blog, we do everything. And I asked some of these questions, Dr. Katzman, that approached, and I said, how do you look at this? They would draw all of the troops. There would be no more troops, and so on. And then, uh, uh, and then you've got, the, 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 uh, of course, the, uh, the Secretary of Defense coming out with, this, with the messages, and everybody said, you know. And the response was, was very fascinating. The first one says, actually, we don't know yet how things will turn out, most of them said. And by the way, those focus group, they could be working for Muqtada Sadr or Ammar al-Hakim or Dawa or anything. I, I don't know really their affiliation at 100%, but that's how I feel about them. That really, we don't know anything. Then many of them said, we didn't understand what President Obama said. It was incomplete. What does he mean? Then we hear other messages coming out from the Secretary of Defense saying, oh, no, 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 we might keep some, you know, on the bases. Yes, there's a reduction of bases. Or we might keep some in Kuwait. We might keep some in here. Then the, the, the other thing that I think was touched on by Dr. Eric also, how about the arm deals? Okay, what is going on? And then, of course, Muqtada Sadr comes out through his outlet saying, Hey, okay, so they're pulling out, how about the largest embassy, U.S. embassy in the world? Legitimate questions, really. Incomplete sentences, incomplete approach. What is going on? So if you look at all these messages and, and then you say, okay, so everybody's talking to their own target audience. Then you've got Prime Minister Maliki, after the announcement of President Obama, he comes out and says, this is great. It's a victory for Iraqi diplomacy. Nothing else. Lost. So the Iraqi people really don't know it, don't know, understand what is going on. Now, there's another reaction came from the Iraqi journalist, and they said, really, come to it, we're all disappointed. Now, even if the U.S. military pulls out, what have they been doing lately? Really, beside the arm deals and beside maybe staying the bases, but I'm sure some of them will stay protecting the embassy. Anyway, all these things really, so it's, it's contradictory messages coming out of the Iraqi, I'm talking about Iraqi press coming out of the prime minister office coming out from the different thing. Today, for instance, and I'm sure you followed it up, there was a big conflict. There was really uh, an announcement came out from the deputy, uh, Dr. Uh, Mutlaq, a deputy uh, to the prime minister saying that uh, the Prime Minister and Commander-in-Chief of the Iraqi forces in Maliki is approving the, or sort of endorsing the latest thing that was two days ago, Salah al-Din province. Uh, they voted that they should have their own semi-independence. 
And I thought, okay, here we go again. So there's something is going on. And especially after the continuation of the debathification for the last few days that we've been hearing about, uh, even uh, transferring um, uh, professors uh, or academics from, the, from Baghdad University and other universities. So all of a sudden, then they came out, some of the, of, the, of course, I'm talking again about the media, saying, oops, okay, here we go again to the game of the Prime Minister diplomacy, is not to talk about what's the outcome of, if the, uh, as President Obama announced, that they're pulling out of the withdrawal of the U.S. forces, but let's switch and always attack, put things on the blame on the Ba'athists, put blame on so-and-so, so we cannot put blame anymore on Al-Qaeda or other militia groups, so let's switch around. And uh, uh, again, I, again, what is going on if, uh, if this is inside the government itself? And uh, also, the, uh, we tackled the, I think, was talked about the Arab Spring. Arab Spring, Iraqis, the youth that participated in Tahrir Square, they feel disappointed with the U.S. press. None of the U.S. press really covered. They're still going, yes, a small in numbers, but then, as I think Dr. Eric also pointed out. Okay, what was it? They were oppressed, they were harassed by the government, okay, forces, the security forces of uh, Baghdad, and yet they felt, hey, we are the youth. The youth kept saying, democracy, the youth, we are here, we are here, but nobody is supporting us. We don't even hear somebody, except, as you know, yesterday, the uh, journalist Daniel Smith, who was detained for four days uh, by Prime Minister and Maliki uh, security forces was released yesterday under the pretext that he was supporting those youth demonstrators in Tahrir Square. That was, for the first time I, I hear that something has come up again about the Tahrir Square. And again, as Dr. Uh, Cole pointed out, even the youth in Tahrir Square after uh, the Arab Spring, they weren't calling for toppling the government. They were asking for infrastructure, and so on, yet they were neglected. And also one final word, I know Dr. Kasma pointed out to me, still speaking about Arab Spring, I'm sure many of you knew that as the Arab Spring started and there was some coverage, and of course there was jamming on several satellites, uh, I heard from journalists who, who participated there that the government of Iraq, Dr. Maliki's office, issued a censorship committee. They would feed the major outlets with messages they would like to tell the world. That's what the media says in Iraq. Do they play a big role? Yes, they do. And they're a very important role. I think my time is out. Thank you. Good afternoon. It's salamu alaikum. Before my talks, I have to give the usual caveats that these opinions are my own and do not represent those of the National Defense University, Georgetown, or any other organization I might be associated with. Okay, so now I can speak my mind. Let's see how much trouble I can get myself into. The American troops look to leave at the end of the year. Most questions have been directed at this event. However, there will be many other events and very fluid, changeable, and often unpredictable events in the region 
and within Iraq. Iraq cannot be considered in a vacuum. No country can. Some people like to see the world as nation-states that can be individually studied and analyzed. But most in this room likely understand that this is not the case. Any policy options with regard to Iraq need to consider the internal dynamics of the country as well as the external dynamics of its region and beyond. Some of the most important dynamics to consider are the further developing of the Sunni-Shia tensions within Iraq, in the region, and globally. Sunni-Shia tensions have become increasingly acidic and explosive in the region. Iraq has been severely damaged and likely changed for the worst in the medium to long runs from these Sunni-Shia conflicts within it. The growing tensions between Saudi Arabia and Iran are getting to a fever pitch. The growing Sunni-Shia tensions within Iraq are in a very bad state. The problems in Bahrain are far from over, and these are in large part due to Sunni-Shia economic, political, cultural, and other tensions. The Sunni-Shia tensions are a big part of the ongoing ruination of the Syrian economy and society. Sunni-Shia tensions are a big part of the problems in Lebanon. These tensions can also be found in Yemen and many other places in the region. Pakistan, Afghanistan also have them. It is a sad fact that possibly the biggest threat to the region might be found in these Sunni-Shia tensions going critical. Iran is a big part of feeding these tensions in all of the countries I have mentioned. One cannot separate out policy recommendations on Iraq from policy recommendations on Iran. These two countries have been intertwined in many ways over the years, especially since March 2003. Now, who really won the war? Who is really in charge here? Iran's influence in Iraq is vast. Many in the most important positions in Iraq today were guests in Iran, Lebanon, South Beirut, Syria, and elsewhere. Iran's influence in the policy decisions of the Iraqi leadership are well known and well documented. It also seems clear that Iran, on its own and via the Sadr Group and others, pushed for the U.S. troops to go at the end of the year, even though there may have been some hope for some to remain for training and other non-combat purposes. Iran and their proxy groups in Iraq and in the region would, of course, want the U.S. influence to weaken. This will further open up more vacuums for the Iranians and their proxies to fill. Less U.S. influence will open up for the Iranians more opportunities for ceding their hegemony in Iraq and other areas. Think of the Iran-Iraq-Syria-Lebanon nexus should also lead one to further get away from linear thinking on this idea. Syria is in the midst of a revolution, a nasty one at that, 
and it's hard to tell how this will turn out. If a Sunni leadership takes over, then Iran may lose one of its largest bases, bases for mischief in the region. This could also change many of the dynamics in Iraq, especially along the border with Syria. This loss of Syria could also weaken Iran's hold on Lebanon. Iran could then look to increase its power base in Iraq and become more aggressive in its influence in that country. Iran may focus more on Yemen and Saudi Arabia, particularly in the eastern part of Saudi Arabia, and we know what sort of problems have been occurring there. But the real prize for Iran is Iraq. It has historical, cultural, and religious hold on the Iranian psyche. It's also a place with a pile of oil, natural gas, other minerals in a powerful strategic location that will lend depth and breadth to the possible Iranian policies in the future. Iraq is also a place of significant investment and trade wealth that could be developed across the countries, which could be good for both countries. Eastern Saudi Arabia may be a bigger oil and strategic prize, but if we get realistic, it's unlikely they will make headway there. Policy recommendations. Given how many countries in the region are in the midst of the Sunni-Shia tensions, and how many of these countries could leverage U.S. policies in the region, we should be developing better relations with some of our natural allies in the GCC region, such as the UAE and Qatar. I suggest we get a lot closer to Saudi Arabia. Recent events in this country lend more credence to that idea. We have become more distant from the Saudis since 9-11. It is time to be more effectively and seriously looking to change that. Our relations with Qatar are complex at times, but this is an increasingly important country that could also help in the overall easing of the tensions between the Shia and the Sunni. Qatar's relations with Iran are complex, especially since they share the largest natural gas field in the world, but also because of proximity and historical complexities. We also have a major air base in Qatar, and Qatar is an increasingly powerful voice in the region and beyond, even for such a small country. The UAE clearly sees Iran as a threat in many ways. The U.S. has a special relationship with the UAE that is not particularly well known in the U.S. The UAE is one of our closest relations in the region, and that relationship should be improved. In my own way, I am putting efforts in that direction. The U.S. also needs to carefully weave its policy ways through the complexities of Bahrain, with our Navy base there and Kuwait with our assistance advice and advice to each other. Our relations with the GCC states are not perfect and they have some tensions within them, such as the Palestinian issue. Another recommendation point, deal with that issue. Deal with it quickly because the Arab Spring, once it calms down, will begin to focus on the Palestinian issue big time.
In order to improve our relations with many of these countries, we have to be seen as a more even-handed interlocutor on that issue. No two countries have perfect relations, but if we are to some way counter Iran's hegemonic activities in the region, we need to develop coalitions. Coalitions are important, if not more important, in peacemaking and hegemony mitigation as they are in war and investments. Then let's take a look at the nuclear issue in Iran. When we consider the Israeli side of the Iraq geopolitical equation, we cannot rule out the Iranian nuclear issue. Israel may just think of and effect a strike on an Iranian nuclear facility. And if that happens, the gates of hell will be open and Iraq will be walked right into it. This would also seriously foul up U.S. relations with everyone in the region. If anyone in power in this city and beyond are thinking about a gunpowder solution to the Iranian problems, I am willing to brief them for a few hours about the rather devastating reverberations and effects that may come from this. Let's not kid ourselves. This could take off on its own. Now, let's just take a look at the oil markets if such things were going to happen. If there is an attack on Iran, and Iraq will be right in the middle of it, and right off the coast of Iraq is a facility called the Al-Basra Oil Terminal. Dr. Davis mentioned the Iraqi Navy. What happens when the U.S. troops leave? Who will protect ABOT, which is essentially 80% of the economy of Iraq? It's terrorism target number one in Iraq. If this conflagration with Iran happens, and if certain events happen in the major oil facilities in the region, then we could expect the price of oil to go to about $300 to $350 conservatively, and then I will invest in bicycles. <laughs> Remember the tanker wars in the 1980s? Some in this room may have been involved in watching that happen, studying it, analyzing it. Now there are far more important oil facilities in the Gulf, far more important for world oil markets and the world economy, which we know is fragile as it is. Think Ras Tanura, Abkaik, and the shoreline facilities in Kuwait, UAE, and so forth. There was some mention of economic diversification of Iraq, getting beyond the apocalyptic vision of World War IV and Iran, and that's not exactly an exaggeration, ladies and gentlemen. A policy goal for the United States and any coalition looking to stabilize Iraq has to look at diversifying the economy. It's far too beholden to oil. With good labor markets, good economic development, good diversity, the Iraqi economy will have much greater stability.
Overseas investments within Iraq, technical assistance and so forth, will be needed. Iraq is in a very difficult and brittle place in its future. Its history has been difficult. It would be best if its future were better, more peaceful, and more prosperous for everyone. The most prosperous region in Iraq is the North. And a lot of that has to do with another geopolitical player, Turkey, who is investing a great deal in the North of Iraq to try to assuage some of the animosities and try to pacify the North of Iraq, but also part of its own southeastern region. But of course, this is the Middle East, and you will find contradictions and complexity. Turkey has recently been on the attack against the PKK. Iran has been going against the PJAC. Oddly enough, with the difficulties Turkey has had with Iran, especially in Syria, the Turks in Iran are now working together to go after these two Kurdish organizations. Turkey is a member of NATO. It is a long-standing ally of the United States. Its policies with regard to Israel have changed. Its on-again and off-again relations with Iran are often quite complex and unpredictable. However, the U.S. will be severely limited in the short, medium, and long term if we start to turn our backs even slightly on Turkey. Turkey and the U.S. can work together on any efforts to help stabilize Iraq and other relations in the region. I disagree wholeheartedly with some people in this city who think we should back away from Turkey. Big mistake. We need Turkey in so many ways and in so many places, and Iraq is just one of them. Turkey is also vital for another source of stability and prosperity in Iraq, water. The rivers start in Turkey. Some sort of an agreement has to be established between Turkey and Iraq and Syria. And I'm being told, please conclude. All right. Will there be an Arab Spring in Iraq? I wouldn't rule that out. Because we've heard that the characteristics that drove the Arab Spring exists in Iraq and are building. But we also might see a Persian Spring because Iran has those characteristics building as well. If you think this is going to be simple, folks, look out. We also have to deal with the strategic contraction of the United States. We have a massive debt. We have gigantic deficits, and the budget cutting in DOD will be severe. I can see that at my own employer. We will not be able to get into these discretionary wars, as we did previously, and spend a trillion dollars and wonder what the end result was. Not only because of the money problem and the debt and the deficit, but also because we have lost massive credibility because of this war. And we have lost it outside and within our own nation. Indeed, 
to remind me of the difficult times I had when this was starting up, and some at this table know about that, and some in this room know about that. Iraq was far from a cakewalk and a slam dunk. And the next time we think about such actions, we need to vet the data. Thank you. Thank you very much. We have some time for questions. Some in the audience have sent some cards up, and I think we sort of covered Turkish influence, Iranian influence, Syrian influence. There was one question such that if things sort of deteriorate in Iraq, would the U.S. go back into Iraq militarily? The answer is no. So I'm going to start taking some questions from the audience, and I guess just have at it then. Sir. Yeah, um, I guess. Uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, I agree with you. I mean, all of, as I said, all of a sudden, this massive technology was just dumped, I think, dumped. Everybody could acquire it. I know I'm speaking about my experience with the journalists, for instance. Hey, don't bring it in. Let's train them. Let's do it slowly. And also, again, if you're dumping all of that on people, yes, they will take advantage of it. It's great, but then uh, I think what we have for us is the U.S. also, what I've learned here, we have the regulations, we have journalist ethics of journalism. Uh, we never had that in, the, in Iraq or in the Middle East. We had instructions. Don't do that, do this, don't show this, do that, and that's it. Otherwise, you'll be punished. Okay, I'm speaking on, I mean, I'm a, as I said, I'm a graduate of the, I think Dr. Gharib here is also, he's familiar with that. You'd be, be punished. So we memorize those things. All of a sudden, hey, you have the freedom. Okay, you have the vehicles even to express yourself. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's take it easy. I agree with you. Introduce it. Teach them what it is. What can you do with it and how you deli really deliver? What's your message? Who's your target audience? What is going on? And also I think what is not only the mass media influx or the explosion of that is that there is no, there are, there is no really regulations about anyone can have a license right now, can start a satellite or from their kitchen. Honestly, this is how it is. The only thing is that the government might interfere if any of those outlets are criticizing the government. But really, there is no, no regulations. And I think this is what we're missing, is that it had to be introduced. Again, I would like to say what we have done training and NGOs are different. USAID had so many programs, European. Yes, they did that, but it wasn't sustainable. It was one week, then see you. Goodbye. Write me a report. You did well in the report. Excellent. You know what democracy is. You know what freedom of expression. 
Uh, I don't know. I, I just one thing what about democracy. When I was there, they kept hampering me. You have to, you have to talk about democracy, democracy. Uh, just one second. And I did a show. I sent all my crew to the streets and everywhere. Tell me about democracy. What does democracy mean? They didn't know. Iraqis were, didn't know that. I say. I mean, it, these are some of the things that I think we should have taken step by step. We can still do it, by the way. It can still be done. Thank you, Mr. Steinberg. Many, many, many years ago, the uh, Iraq Study Group had proposed a framework for tackling some of these problems uh, in regional security and suggested there might be an option for a regional forum type approach in which Turkey, Iran, Russia, United States, other neighboring countries would be brought in for some kind of framework discussions. Is the time for that option passed? And if so, how do we deal with this Iran problem, which Okay, I need to repeat the question. The question is the Iraq Study Group recommendations on a regional framework for Iraq. Who wants to take it? Dr. Well, Cole? I, I, I don't have something to say about that. I, personally, I think that there's a, uh, while I have made the argument that Iranian political influence in Iraq is actually increasing, at least at the top, and Professor Davis is correct that what goes on at the grassroots may be somewhat different. I think it's also important to keep a sense of balance. So far, the Iraqi uh, elite has seemed interested in, in balancing. Uh, and so you'll note that it's done a deal uh, with China to develop, uh, I think it's North Korna, uh, and it's, it's done deals with other uh, European firms, for instance, does it, it seems one to, to, to one to not have all of its eggs in the U.S. basket. Iran really doesn't have very much to offer it with regard to the petroleum and, and gas industry, I don't think. Uh, and so the, the behavior of the Iraqi elite so far is to avoid being captured by any one outside power, including the United States, which was hegemonic militarily at the time that it was making these, uh, these deals. So I suspect that what the Iraq uh, a study group uh, recommended will happen willy-nilly. That is to say, the Iraqis themselves, as they get the petroleum industry back on its feet, as they start to export more, have more uh, money to play with, address some of their infrastructural problems, will want to go out and, and do bids with Russia and, and Turkish and other firms. And of course, uh, as, uh, uh, as Paul Sullivan mentioned, Turkey is already a very, very major investor in Iraq. And I expect that investment actually to increase, uh, uh, perhaps exponentially, over the coming years. So I think that's what's going to happen. I don't think Iran has that much to offer Iraq economically uh, or socially, and, and therefore the Iraqis will tend to go elsewhere for those uh, needs. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to add that, again, I think there's a, there's a, um, a domestic social dimension that has to be brought into this mix, too. Maliki has been continuously under vicious attacks from the Sudrists, largely, I would argue, prompted by the Iranians. And um, that has kind of constrained him from adjusting the sofa. And it has uh, constrained him from really taking any kind of serious policies that would anger the Iranians. So as long as you continue to have a situation in which uh, groups like the Sudras, and there are others that are now, like the League of the Righteous and others, that are all open up to Iranian influence, as long as you don't kind of address this kind of underlying 
policy where you have kind of this endless stream of recruits and you have support from Iran, Maliki is going to have certain freedom of action, certainly wants to balance, but he's going to be, in a sense, tied to the Iranians because otherwise he's going to be open to this populist critique that he's trying to turn to the West. Thank you. Yes, and please, can we have questions on Iraq? Because a lot of the questions we're getting are sort of on other issues. Please. Question. The question is about poor people in Iraq, orphans, and what is the situation and what can be done. Dr. Davis. Well, I think when I make an argument in a larger discussion of Iraq, I talk about the two Iraqs because to the extent that you have 6,000 civil society organizations, many of which are not quote-unquote real civil society, but those that are are largely populated by youth, and youth have been involved in a lot of um, conflict resolution, oftentimes sub rosa because they don't want to be attacked by sectarian organizations. But there's another side to this coin, the fact that the sectarian militias are also populated by young people who don't have jobs, and they've been involved in some very horrendous activity. And a lot of them come from families, because the other issue with the side of what you talked about is female-headed households. It's a huge number uh, where mothers reluctantly send their youth to their children to join terrorist organizations and criminal organizations, not because they want to. It's a question of basically staying alive. So the sample that I presented certainly underrepresented the type of folks that you would like us to get at, even though in the South, in Hilla, for example, we're able to tap into that. And these were focus groups. So the focus groups are preparatory, as I said, to a much larger study, which is going to be a national family survey, hopefully. And there we're going to try to make the effort to really um, be more representative in terms of social stratification. Thank you. Uh, Shaiji, you're up.
Sullivan, and I, uh, I also uh, agree with him that the United States should really strike a, a better balance, a better relationship, and encourage a better relationship with the GCC states. But how do you go about it? Does the United States look at the GCC states as strategic partners or as followers who should be what the United States is asking them? First, Dr. Davis, and then Sullivan on, on, on youth, and then Sullivan on the broader. Well, first of all, we sign an agreement, and if we take the rule of law seriously in international law, we have to leave by December, which I mean we, the United States, has to leave. So it's not really a question. I know Rick Perry and other candidates on the Republican side have been criticizing President Obama. We really don't have a choice unless we want to suddenly say we're an imperialist power, and the document that we signed in 2008 is no meaning. Uh, then that's the only way that troops could remain. As far as the youth, and again, I didn't have enough time to explicate things, I'm not trying to create a binary between secular and religious. What I'm talking about is a distinction between religion, as I suspect you and I think of it, which is a personal quality. You have no idea if I'm religious, I have no idea if you're religious. What they call in Arabic a din al-Masayis, which is politicized religion. That's what I think youth are reacting. Because youth are saying that they are against religion does not mean that they don't take religious values seriously. What it really means is they don't like politicized religion, I would argue. Dr. Sullivan. Well, I agree. It's the status of forces agreement. This is a political issue within Iraq. My sense is if we had a full choice to keep people there, we would do that. But uh, that was not to be, and my sense is Iran was behind pushing for that. With regard to the strategic partnership, that is the way I would look at it, not sending orders out. This region is a complex one. We really don't have a real regional policy. Let's get real about it. We don't have a grand strategy that fits in to our national interest full stop. And there should be a reconfiguring of those national interests to look toward more effective calculations for our own future. My main interest in my employment at the National Defense University is the national security and the national interests of the United States full stop. And from there, we can make better decisions. Thank you. Dr. Cole, just two seconds. And then just, just to say that the status of forces agreement was negotiated by the Bush administration with the Iraqi parliament. And it was, uh, um, it was the stance of the Obama administration that a change in it or an extension of it would have also to be negotiated with the Iraqi parliament. There was not support in the Iraqi parliament for, for continued U.S. troop presence. And I, I don't think it's just a matter of Iran. I just think Iraqis didn't like foreign troops uh, dominating their country. And the United States has a long history of bilateral such agreements. When the Philippine Senate asked the U.S. to close the bases at Subic Bay, it closed them. I can't tell you how much the Navy didn't want to do that, but these are bilateral agreements. Thank you. Sir.
Okay, the question was, are the AQI attacks on Sunnis, could that have an effect of reducing sectarian conflict between Sunni and Shia? Uh, Dr. Rassam. I don't, I mean, uh, again, media, okay? I'm telling as you know. Uh, this has been tackled by media, I mean, Iraqi media and the neighboring countries, media. But it's, it, it surfaced a little bit, then dismissed. They say no matter what, what is the fact? Nobody tackles the fact, so there's no factual reality really who is doing the attack, and it's already dismissed. And I think, I believe, from reading in the media, it's dismissed by the political parties themselves and the religious parties who are ruling the country themselves. They don't want to see this as, as uh, an inspiration or something that would lead to dismantle the idea of secretar uh, secretarian uh, conflict. Uh, that's what I read, again, from even my focus group. This is how they explain it. Thank, thank you. Uh, two seconds, then. Yeah, I just wanted to say, I think we have to be very careful about kind of boiling everything in Iraq down to a kind of sectarian dynamic. There are considerable tensions, as we know, within the Sunni community. The Sahwa movement, the Anbaris, and we see now tremendous struggles going on among the Shia, among the Nasadris and the Sa'ab al-Haq, this League of the Righteous and other groups that have come up. So again, this idea that everybody kind of thinks together with this communal mind, Sunnis think one way, I mean, I think that's somewhat problematic. But certainly I think that the dynamic you're talking about is precisely the dynamic that led Anbaris to sort of turn against al-Qaeda because they saw that they were not in their interest. And I think most Iraqis don't see kind of instability, constant sectarianism, bombing, having to worry about every time you go to the market, are you going to get blown up? I mean, it's nothing to do with Iraqis or Sunni Shiites or Kurds. You want some predictability in life and you want a, a stable environment. Okay, last question, Ken Audrey. question is, is Iraq going to fall apart unless another strong man emerges? Who wants it? We think it's already yeah, happened. Yeah, we, we're going to do this as a duo and say it's already happened. Mm -hmm. But also we have to add in something that uh, Dr. Davis mentioned, and that's the economy of Iraq uh, with the unemployment issue, sometimes devastating unemployment issues in some parts of it, the lack of hope amongst the youth and all those Arab awakening characteristics. Uh, the sectarian divide feeds off of that and even intra-sectarian divides feed off of that. The more time kids have to get angry, they'll get angry. And they'll talk about the loss of hope that they have. And this is throughout the Arab world now. It's the kids in Tahrir Square with the ship ship in Cairo. Or the people in Benghazi or the young boy in Tunis who torched himself. This is hopelessness. And if you have hopelessness, you want to grasp onto something. And that's where the difficulties may lie. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>